Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Monday the 14th of March. Tom Tilly with you. In this episode, a Russian explains the impact of the war on her own citizens. We are being dragged into a really horrible time and everything that people worked for, the 30 years of bringing innovation, new business, trying to build a democracy, a new culture, this has all been undone. This is just no longer there. A Russian perspective on the Ukraine conflict. That's our briefing in just a moment. First, today's headlines with Katrina Blowers, who might sound a little bit different to you because she is stuck at home. Her poor son has COVID. Russia has launched an airstrike just 18 k's from the Polish border. What it shows is that Vladimir Putin is frustrated by the fact that his forces are not making the kind of progress that he thought that they would make against major cities, including Kyiv. That's the US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on CNN. So far, most of the fighting had been in the south and the northeast of the country, but this airstrike hit a military training base 60 k's to the west of Lviv in western Ukraine, and it killed at least 35 people and wounded 134. Yeah, it's a real worry. So the attack happened hours after the Kremlin had warned that Western supply lines into Ukraine were legitimate targets. Meanwhile, the Polish president says he fears Vladimir Putin could use chemical weapons, and if so, it would be a game changer in the conflict. Anthony Albanese is starting to poll very well. The opposition leader is drawn level with Scott Morrison as preferred Prime Minister for the first time in more than two years. And this is according to the latest news poll. The poll conducted for the Australian shows Labor leading 55 to 45 on a two-party preferred basis. And that's held steady over the last three polls, despite the flood disaster, the war in Ukraine and major defence announcements made by the government. So this election is going to be very interesting, isn't it, Katrina? Mm. Let's hope we don't have any more disasters between now and when we go to the polls so uh, both sides can get some clear air. Been shocked by the uh, price of petrol at the petrol station lately? Yes, I have. It's unbelievable. Yeah, over $2. So the Prime Minister has left open the possibility of cutting the petrol excise tax on petrol in the budget as the cost of this hits household budgets, which are already really tight. The budget is coming up at the end of this month, but I think Australians understand. Yes or no? No, it's, 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 the answer is the budget's at the end of this month. The PM on nine there. So the Russian invasion of Ukraine has sent fuel costs soaring around the country. They've gone up from $1.70 a litre to, as you said, Tom, more than $2.20. Yeah, so part of that is a 44 cents per litre fuel excise that the federal government charges us. It gets them $11 billion per year, so it's a big revenue raiser, but the pressure is mounting on the PM to cut that because obviously $2.20 is too much for most people. Mm. So the South Australian Premier, um, Stephen Marshall, is one of the Premiers calling for this. He's been talking about it over the weekend. They've got an election coming up on Saturday. It's a very difficult time. Uh, temporary relief would be very, very much welcomed. Hey, he's not the only one. The New South Wales and Tasmanian Liberal Premiers have both supported a cut in the excise too, but it brings in so much money, Tom. Mm. I don't know that that's something that they're going to set a precedent on. The blame game over the floods and the call-up of defence support has escalated. Yesterday, News Corp revealed the head of the New South Wales State Emergency Service, Colleen York, had knocked back help from the ADF on the Friday before the floods hit on Sunday. 
Here's her explanation for that decision. I can't respond or prepare for an event that hasn't been forecasted, but even taking at its highest in the Northern Rivers went two metres above what was forecast. So the New South Wales Premier has backed the SES, but he's promised a thorough review. And there's been another leak to the media on this issue. This one's the Sydney Morning Herald. It's on their front page today where it says, the New South Wales government asked the federal government for Defence Force intervention as far back as the Sunday of the floods. And they only heard about the troop numbers being offered the following Friday when Bridget McKenzie, the Federal Emergency Services Minister, made a media statement. Gosh, what a what a mess, hey? Just so much tit for tat, you know. I guess what we do know is that many communities had to wait more than a week for the troop numbers to ramp up and were left to fend for themselves. An inquiry is going to be underway into this, but uh, something went wrong somewhere. Yeah, and I think people are wondering what happened after the bushfires because they're There was legislation passed which allowed the federal government to intervene sooner without necessarily waiting for the request from the states, but it wasn't enough to get these troops moving as fast as people needed them. There will now be a coronial inquest into the death of Northern Territory teenager Kumanjai Walker after a police officer was found not guilty of his murder. So the month-long trial heard how police officer Zachary Rolfe and his partner have been trying to arrest Walker in Yundamu back in November 2019 after the teenager had escaped from a rehab facility to attend a funeral. Walker put up a fight. He stabbed Rolf in the shoulder with a pair of scissors before Rolf fired his Glock pistol three times. Uh, the prosecution had argued that Rolf used excessive force and didn't need to shoot 19-year-old Walker two more times after that first shot was fired. Rolf's lawyers argued he'd acted in self-defence. Yeah, so then after seven hours of deliberations, the jury found him not guilty of all of the charges. Now, in the weeks after Walker's death, there were dozens of protests around the country against police brutality towards Indigenous Australians. So this incident, the case, has caused a lot of outrage and concern amongst Indigenous Australians. So there was a lot of disappointment reported over the weekend at the court's decision. Now we're going to have this inquest, which will take place later this year. And Tom, just before we take you guys to today's briefing, we wanted to let you all know that we had to take down our Friday episode of the briefing. It was the episode with the Tinder Swindler interview. Uh, If you didn't hear it, that was the interview about the Netflix series with one of the victims, or at least so we thought. Yeah, it turns out the person Katrina interviewed wasn't the real Cecile. And yes, we do realise the irony of this. Someone was impersonating her And our suspicion is that this imposter was trying to profit from the story, either through fake fundraising or paid media interviews. She asked us to pay her, um, but we refused that offer. And now that episode has been taken down. Bit of a wild one there. Um, Katrina, we'll catch you uh, later. Jan Fran's about to join me as we get the Russian perspective on the Ukraine crisis. So, Jan Fran, it's pretty crazy to see just what a different story Russians are getting about this conflict in Ukraine compared to what we're seeing. Yeah, so, Tom, you might remember last week a maternity hospital in the southern city of Mariupol was bombed last week by Russia. Russians were told that the building was abandoned and that it had been taken over by neo-Nazis. So that's a very different story to the one that we heard where there were casualties, including children and many people injured. Yeah, so if 
the story they're getting so different, how do Russians know what they're supporting or opposing? Yeah, that's the question. And Daria Suharchuk is a freelance Russian journalist. She's living in Berlin. She's been living there for some time. But she's been following this unfolding situation in Ukraine very closely. I am a journalist, but I'm also a Russian citizen under the new laws, which have been passed in Russia since Russia started the war in Ukraine. I am now a criminal because I have uh, done the act of treason by supporting Ukrainian humanitarian relief. I have also, uh, while being a Russian citizen, have Cold War war and not a special operation. This is another offense. I have also denounced it. And this is another one. I've also called to protest. This is also an offense. So as you can see, I'm quite the seasoned criminal here. Actually, the worst of those crimes is treason, which is about 20 years in jail by Russian law. How do you feel about mm-hmm. that? You're laughing about it, but it sounds quite yeah. serious. Yeah, it does. Um, Well, I know for a fact that I won't be able to return to my home country anytime soon unless there are some uh, significant changes in the regime. (laughs) There are many Russians who did the exact same crimes that I did. So now we all joke that we are organized career criminals. Daria, it's interesting that you mentioned that one of the things that has made you a criminalized person is calling the war a war and not say, a special operation. They're two very different things. So tell us what kind of story (laughs) Russians are getting about the war in Ukraine. So let's say that Russia doesn't only have the official state-controlled media, which say what the state wants them to say, it also has effectively introduced military censorship. So actually, the very few independent media that have existed in Russia before are now either closed down or at the threat of being closed down, or they had to comply with uh, the military censorship and they have stopped reporting on the war completely, the report on things inside Russia. But the story that Russians are hearing from the media is that the Russian army is conducting a special operation, and a special operation is a term for a military operation which is not part of a war. Officially, Russia is not a country at war. It is, in fact, conducting a special operation by protecting the Russian-speaking people in Ukraine, which, according, again, to the Russian media and to President Putin himself, actually, are the threat of the genocide uh, from the Ukrainian neo-Nazis and drug addicts. Again, I'm quoting Mr. Putin here. Please don't judge me. So this is the story they've been hearing. And um, since if you will ask me how about the destruction of civilian buildings or, for example, a number of hospitals that have been bombed lately, actually one has been bombed just last night in the city of Zhutomir, not far from Kiev. And you've probably heard a story of two or three days ago, a maternity hospital has been bombed in the city of Mariupol in the southeast of the country. So the story that the Russian officials and the official media are repeating after them is that actually this was quite ironic, really, to be honest, well, morbidly ironic. But officially, the story was at first that actually the maternity hospital has long been abandoned. There have not been any patients there or any children or any doctors. It has actually been an abandoned building which have been occupied by the far-right evil Ukrainian neo-Nazis, which Russian military bombed. And this has all been faked and all the evidence has been faked by the Ukrainian side. Mm. Okay, so that's how they're explaining why they've gone yeah. into Ukraine. But how are they explaining the the scope of this assault? Because they're moving troops around and they're, they're firing on a large number of Ukraine cities. So 
is it the story being told that they are going to occupy the whole country or just certain parts of it? How are they explaining the scope of this special operation? <laughs> well, this is the mystery because apparently it doesn't seem like anybody in Russia knows what were the original plans of Mr. Putin. But it seems that the most commonly shared idea is that he thought that if he's going to assault Ukraine, the government of Vladimir Zelensky will fall within a few days and then Putin would be able to reinstall Mr. Yanukovych, the ousted Ukrainian president who was kicked out in 2014 at the Maidan revolution, mm-hmm. and say that the last eight years have never taken place place and Ukraine is back into the fold of Russian satellites, essentially. Staying with the sort of line of misinformation, earlier this month, Russia um, imposed a law that critics say criminalises independent reporting on Ukraine. And that then led several foreign media outlets, including the New York Times, to pull their journalists out of Russia. What is it like to be a journalist in Russia currently trying to report honestly on the war in Ukraine? It is frankly dangerous. You're too dangerous of imprisonment if you're a Russian journalist, especially because so far, again, this is old norms which no longer apply. But until lately, Russian regime was reluctant to imprison foreigners. They tried not to do it. So if you were a Russian citizen and you called war war and, for example, say that Russian army has bombed the maternity hospital in Mariupol, uh, you were committing an offense. You were spreading fake news. You were not allowed to call it war. You were supposed to call it special operation again. So this conflict is now going into its third week. So how's the Russian-controlled state media working that into their narrative? So until last week, the Russian Defense Ministry did not even acknowledge that there were any uh, deaths among the Russian soldiers in Ukraine. Also, they never acknowledged that they have used conscripts, not contract soldiers, because Russia has conscription. So there are people who did not join the military voluntarily. They were kind of conscripted to it, so essentially forced. But during peacetime, it's not as dangerous uh, as it is now, obviously, during war. But this week, they have actually acknowledged that some conscripts have been involved in the special operation in Ukraine and that about 500 soldiers have been lost. Just for the difference, the Ukrainian side claims that there have been at least 12,000 Russian soldiers killed in Ukraine, which sounds way more realistic. And Ukraine is actually publishing all this information. They're publishing lists of dead and captured people. Their claims are definitely more verifiable. I haven't personally counted uh, how many Russian soldiers have been lost in Ukraine, but it doesn't sound like it is 500. We know that there have been thousands of people that have been arrested at anti-war protests. Can you give us an indication of the size and the scale of the anti-war movement in Russia that we might not be hearing about? There have been, as far as I remember, about 14,000 people detained at protests. Over the last weekend, it has been about 5,000. That's the number I know reliably. So we know that there are tens of thousands of people who go to protests in different cities uh, in Russia. It is true that unfortunately we don't really have huge marches through the cities. One of the reasons that is happening is because uh, there is essentially a ban on protests in Russia. It was there before the war. It was introduced with the pretext of COVID, but given that Russian state didn't really take COVID seriously, it was obviously used as a simple pretext. It was nothing like it was in Germany. Germany, by the way, didn't ban protests during COVID, just for a difference. So there are small groups of people, many of Navalny supporters have been imprisoned, tried, 
many have been forced to flee, fearing for their freedom. The most prominent ones, of course, especially because they were for sure going to jail as Alexei Navalny himself. Okay. So these were the critical mass of people who could organize a big protest because they were seasoned activists that were in this for a good decade, which knew everything. They had good social networks. They mm. knew everything. And they're no longer physically there. They're fled, imprisoned, or they're hiding somewhere and just not daring to really, you know, go out there and organize anything because they know that if they organize something, they're going to get the harshest jail sentences. Mm. It's clearly very hard to gauge the level of opposition from the protests, given how tightly they're controlled. But where do you think public sentiment is at generally in Russia, in people's minds, not so much on the streets? And how much are the sanctions affecting that? Oh, the sanctions are having a massive blow on the people. Of course, inflation is predicted to reach about 30% this year. Mm. We're not at the level of Venezuela, but we're probably getting there. Mm. People are losing their jobs. For example, a lot of Western brands that have left Russia over the last two years, and they have been living in droves. Volkswagen, you know, the German automobile giant has stopped production in Russia. This is hundreds of thousands of people who are now left unemployed. Of course, they're going to get their three-month salary because they have been fired, but it's not a lot of money. Mm. And a ruble is losing its value. Things are getting more expensive. Again, the imports are banned. So Russia was, depending on imports, it's no longer going to get them. Putin has promised that he's going to increase all kinds of state support programs. The question is, will he do it? Where do you see this going? What do you think is going to happen? Do you think Russia is going to tank over Ukraine or do you think this has gone so much worse than they expected that they might have to withdraw? To be honest, I don't even think how possibly Russia can take over Ukraine. I'm not a military analyst, but from what I have read, it doesn't seem that Russia has the resources to do this kind of thing. Occupation is a very resource-intensive and expensive affair, which Russia probably cannot afford. Personally, of course, I wish they would withdraw. The problem is that even if Ukraine wins, I don't think that Putin would ever roll back the laws he imposed in Russia itself. He probably enjoys being a proper old-fashioned 20th century dictator, but we are being dragged into a really horrible time and everything that people worked for, the 30 years of bringing innovation, new business, trying to build a democracy, a new culture, this has all been undone. This is just no longer there. That was freelance Russian journalist Daria Sahachuk speaking there. And it's an incredibly unfortunate situation because not only are Russians getting a distorted picture of what's happening in Ukraine, but the West could very well be getting a distorted picture of what's happening in Russia because of the immense crackdown on independent journalism there. Even if there was dissent, it's very difficult to know Mm. the scale of it. It's very difficult to know the number of people that would oppose Vladimir Putin. So we have to bear that in mind as well. For all the people that do support him or do support this special operation, they don't necessarily know what they're supporting and are not getting an accurate picture. So it might be frustrating to know that a certain percentage of Russians do support it, but they're supporting a lie and they're not getting access to any other information that tells them the truth. All right, tomorrow on The Briefing, you might have seen the headlines over the weekend about the acquittal of Northern Territory Police Officer Zachary Rolfe. He stood trial for the murder of Kumunjai Walker, an Indigenous man from Yundamu in remote Northern Territory. So in tomorrow's app, we'll explain 
The full story from the death to the jury's not guilty verdict on Friday. Listener.